Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. If your pitch gets rejected, or it doesn't get responded to, just try again. That's probably the thing that I that I, I found most helpful, is trying to take the emotion out of putting yourself out there and just go for it. Building a career as a freelance travel writer takes some serious creativity, both in your pitches and in your audience. But it's hard work that can also be a ton of fun, and it can teach people about the outside world, both near and far. I'm Amelia Bruss. Welcome to Excel Journalism. Cassandra Cluse is a globe-trotting, mountain-climbing, providence-loving, freelance travel reporter who's carving her own path as a one-woman journalistic entity. Before going freelance, she worked in newspapers in Virginia, where she and I met, and Colorado, and at an outdoor trade magazine called Outside Business Journal, formerly Snooze. She's also coached others on going freelance, and I wanted to bring her in to share some of her expansive knowledge on this, but not everything, because y'all got to pay her for that knowledge. And to, uh, for her to talk about her newest project, Down City Inc., which is all about her home state of Rhode Island. Cassandra, welcome to It's All Journalism, and it's so nice to finally see you again after all this time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I can't believe how long it's been. Yeah. It's well overdue. You decided to go freelance full-time in 2017. What was running through your mind when you finally pulled the trigger on that? And what do you remember being your sort of first step or first line of attack in how you were going to start setting yourself up for this new adventure and new enterprise? Yeah, great question. I really started laying the groundwork maybe about a year before I left to go freelance. I didn't really know until I was working at that job that it was a career that you could have to write about travel and the outdoors full time and make a living doing that. But I had met a lot of other freelancers who were doing the kind of thing that I wanted to be doing. So I started freelancing on the side, right, trying to write stories that I wanted to write in the future, trying to get my byline out there. Um, I tried to go to trade events where I might meet other writers and editors doing the things that I wanted to be doing so that I could more easily pitch them later on. And I also worked really hard to save a lot of money so that I'd have a little bit of a cushion when I did finally quit my job so that I wouldn't be constantly worried about being able to pay my bills. How did you then start building up your network of publications and editors to write for and to pitch for? I guess I really just started with the people I knew. So I, I was lucky that I worked for a big magazine publishing company. The one small publication I worked for had a lot of sister publications. And if you like, for anyone who's worked in publishing or journalism anyway, you know people move around a lot. So I pitched stories for people that I had used to work with in some capacity in, in other jobs or people that I was like, working with at my company. I, I had the opportunity to kind of like set up some projects for after I left because they knew that they would need somebody and they knew that I was going to be available. It's very much like write what you know. So 
one of my first freelance clients was actually a student loan refinancing company that I still work for today. And I found, I just, I had refinanced my loans through them. So I sent an email to the editor of their blog and was like, hey, I'm interested in freelancing. Is there any chance you can give me some guidelines on what to pitch you? We set up a phone call. She assigned me a couple of stories and they've been one of my best clients ever since. So it's just, you just kind of have to be a little bit creative and maybe even a little bit audacious with you trying to put ideas out there. Do you remember maybe like, like a pitch that you made to an editor that just didn't go anywhere, but was maybe like a learning experience for how to improve your pitching after that? Oh my gosh, there are so many. There's so many pitches that never got any response. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I've learned in my years of freelancing is that it's not personal when someone doesn't respond to you or when your pitch gets rejected. And, and I say that because in my early days of freelancing, there were so many stories that I wanted to write for so many magazines that I just had like on my dream list. Like I wanted to write for National Geographic and Afar and Airbnb magazine. And I still would love to write for all of those places. Um, and I haven't yet, but in my early days, I wouldn't even pitch them. I wouldn't send any ideas because I, I think I was just so afraid that I only had one shot. And that if I sent them a bad pitch, then I'd be blacklisted forever, but it doesn't work that way. You send out a pitch and editors get sometimes hundreds of emails a day from writers, from people who work in PR trying to pitch their product or their destination, from you know people on their own staff, if your pitch gets rejected or if it doesn't get responded to, just try again. That's probably the thing that I that I, I found most helpful is trying to take the emotion out of putting yourself out there and just go for it. It's funny because you just listed a lot of companies that are not news companies that you've pitched to. And I've seen so much of your writing that was like, you got to test like outdoor gear and stuff, go to an extreme location, like, like in Peru or in Japan or in the Swiss Alps or something. And the story was about testing gear, but you were still writing. That honestly never would have occurred to me to like pitch to a company to write for them, not to pitch to a news company. So do you have to like kind of readjust your thinking and how you present yourself to them rather than presenting yourself to a news organization that sort of like gets journalists and gets how they work? I think for me, some of the pitching companies and some of the relationships I have with companies has happened very organically because I used to go to a lot of trade shows in the outdoor industry. So I would just meet people who worked at these companies in person. And then it would be a little bit easier to shoot them an email and be like, hey, like I'm interested in trying this product or they would email me and they'd be like, we would like for you to try this product and then maybe you'd write about it for one of your publications. And that's another interesting thing about freelancing too, is that all of these connections come from so many different directions. There's not like one right way of doing things or one formula. I just want to find the best working relationship. And I say that because as a freelancer, there are so many opportunities out there and the ones that pay really well, like really good living wages are not, they're, they're out there, but they're harder to find. And you have to look harder for them and you have to think a little bit more strategically about them. One of the like lesser known places that I've come across in my time as a freelancer is like alumni magazines, for example. There was a story I really wanted to write a couple of years ago and it, um, I, wanted, I wanted to profile this student who as an intern had made like a pretty significant discovery about a um, 
like a process for making waterproof clothing. And I pitched a story about her to her alumni magazine for her university and it landed and that was that was fantastic. And like alumni magazines often like pay much better than a newspaper does or a magazine does. And so if you think about kind of like in terms of the business of freelancing, kind of like chasing, I hate to say it as like chasing the paycheck because nobody wants to think that that's what it is. But I but do like think, to think that, that's why we got out of our office jobs is that we don't want to chase the paycheck. We don't want to chase the paycheck, but you want to chase a project that values your time. And a lot of times companies that are willing to pay for your time, which gives you more creative space because you're not, you're not chasing a thousand projects a month. You might be chasing 10. That gives you a lot more time and creative space to really put work and effort into those projects and also to do your own creative projects on the side and it kind of like hone your own craft and ways that you want to hone it. And so I think that's, that's kind of part of why I think a lot about companies that align with my values as an outdoors woman, as a journalist, as a reporter, as like a creative writer, and how can we work together so that they can produce really good storytelling with a journalistic angle. And also, it's a really fun project to work on and pays better than some other projects that I pay. Since you're on your own, you can really, you can put yourself behind the projects that you're doing. In, and what I mean is, you don't have the banner of really a, a, an established or very recognizable publication that has you on staff hanging over you that you can say, well, personally, I don't care about this story, but, you know, but the people upstairs do. So that's why I'm writing it. And, but in your case, you have to be able to defend the work that you're doing, you know, and you have to be able to stand behind it and say, I freely chose to do this project. I freely chose to write this story. Yes, I had a basic prompt or basic pitch or something that I was working from, from the, from the publisher, but ultimately I'm standing out there on my own defending this work. You know, you got to probably make sure that your heart's in it to a, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, that's something I think about a lot, actually, because when you're a freelancer working with 20, 30, however many companies you're working with, you've got magazines, you've got newspapers, you've got blogs, you've got your own projects, you've got companies and, and like figuring out ways for everything to work together in a like ethical and sustainable way that also matches like your guidelines as a human. Like, I don't want to write about products that are bad for the environment. I don't want to like just, and, and sometimes, sometimes it's not easy to avoid doing that because sometimes an editor wants you to write, like someone hands you an assignment and then it's on you to decide what your, like, where your like ethical compass is as a journalist. Like, do I want to take this story? And if I do take this story, how do I want to tell it in a way that aligns with my values? And I, I say that because I think like, on the note of reviewing outdoor gear, I've learned a lot about the sustainability side of like the stuff that we produce and the stuff that we use. And it's an interesting balance to strike to want to protect the environment, but also want to like write about stuff that people should buy. 
And so that's like, it's a, it's a tricky balance. And it's something that I think about a lot and try really hard in my work to, to, to make sure that I'm, I'm like doing right by the planet and the consumers. It sounds like a big, like wacky thing. No, it's good. I think it's, I think, I personally think that's a good way to think about it because when I read travel writing now, I'm aware of like how little of the world at this point is unexplored. And we have so much, we have so much more knowledge now about the impact that tourism and, and travel has on destinations, on communities, on, on economies that are dependent on tourism and for better or for worse. And, and I, I kind of wonder when I read travel writing now, like what is the sort of responsibility that maybe the writers feel about how much they should give away about the place and how, what parts they should highlight about the places they're traveling to. I remember I remember watching an interview of Anthony Bourdain, RIP, when he said, you know, sometimes I go to a restaurant and I don't tell the audience where it is because I don't want them to go there and ruin it mm. for the locals. So I'm curious to know what you, what you think makes travel writing still relevant and good and worthwhile now, what you maybe try to do with your travel writing. What a fantastic question. I'm so glad you asked this because I've been thinking about this a lot this week in particular. There's, there's so much to say about this. I think, first of all, the conversation about how to protect places so that travel is sustainable is such an important one to have. And there's not an easy answer because there's basically two extremes. There's like the extreme of giving everybody access and the extreme of giving nobody access. And I don't really personally know where the balance is in the middle, but I think it's a conversation that everybody needs to partake in because I think we want the outdoors, for example, to be accessible. We want people to grow up thinking that it is, it is their place to recreate and we want people to grow up having tons of access to nature so that they grow up wanting to protect nature and they turn into adults who, who vote to protect the environment just as an example. And if, and if we are trying to exclude people from having access to these places for the sake of making it a nice experience full of lots of solitude for a small group of people, then we're not welcoming everybody in. But we also need to have the infrastructure available to make sure that when people are coming in to go hiking, the land isn't just being completely forgotten. It needs, it needs to be managed in some way. I think a really good example of this a couple of years ago, I wrote an article about natural hot springs you can hike to around the US. And in this article, I included one in Colorado that's very, very well known called Conundrum Hot Springs. And someone emailed me to be really upset, to, like, to, to express anger that I had shared the name of this hot spring in the article. Even though it's so popular, you need to get a permit to go now. You can't just like go, you have to preserve a permit, which I think is a, a, a system that helps to mitigate how many people want to go but it just struck me as interesting that someone was basically like i'm entitled to go here and have it be my quiet solitude or my my um quiet private place and like i don't want anybody else coming in so i think that that is a very important conversation to have and in terms of what i think um or what i'm trying to do with my travel writing i think as much as I want people to feel excited about going far and wide and, and exploring and pushing their limits and 
you know, hiking to the top of a mountain that maybe they thought that they wouldn't be able to. I think it's really important to be able to walk around your neighborhood and get excited about tiny everyday magic that happens in your own community. Because I think a lot of people want to travel because they want to break their routine, but it would be great if you could like bring some of that back home to your everyday life with you. And that's what I want my travel writing to inspire people to do is to just think about their everyday lives in a different way and, and maybe like experience more wonder and awe at home when they're not constantly traveling. Because if all you do is dream about where else you want to be, then you're only going to be happy for like your two weeks of vacation a year. And there's 50 more weeks that you can find adventure. So is that why you wanted to start Down City Inc. and kind of take your gaze back to your beloved home state of Rhode (laughs) Island and find all the little staycation sounds really crass, but all of the sort of homegrown, you know, adventures that you can have in your own backyard? I would say actually it's more of why I have started out of office. So I have two newsletters. Yeah. So you have um, so many newsletters. I do not. I know. I'm working on so many things. I can't keep track of all of it. Um, But that's the fun thing about being a freelancer is you can just be like, I'm, I'm bored and I'm procrastinating whatever it is that I'm working on. So I'm just going to start a new publication about Rhode Island in the spare two hours that I have. And then uh, maybe something will come of it and maybe not. So far, people seem to be resonating with it. But um, I have a longer running newsletter that's now called Out of Office. And in that, I share a lot of personal essays about just like life abroad and like the lessons that I learned and like finding thrills and like the mundane things of everyday life. I love going to the grocery store in foreign countries. I hope that my writing can inspire people to look for that everyday magic and to like, find one small thing to be really enthusiastic or excited about every day. Like I love writing letters and it sounds like such an old school thing because it is. But when I travel, my favorite thing to do is to go to a cafe, ideally a cafe that I also went to the day before, like settle into a little bit of a local's routine and then sit down and write a letter and then find a mailbox and mail it. It's just the best. It's like a very slow little moment and it's kind of like a gift to my future self because I, I write a lot of postcards to friends and family, but I also write a lot of letters to myself that I then like ship off and then I receive them weeks or months later, if at all. And it's always a fun surprise. That's so cute though. I love that you do that. By the way, then what are some of your favorite tools of the trade that you work with the most um, apps or actual items or your favorite type of notebooks or other kind of equipment maybe that you tend to use the most in your writing and your work? One of my favorite tools of the trade is the Remarkable tablet. It's kind of like an oversized Kindle that you can write on with a pen. I like it because sometimes when I'm sitting in front of my computer trying to type, I self-edit way too much and it takes me way too long to get to the end of the story. But if I'm writing on paper, I don't do as much crossing out and I can get a first draft out much faster and then just type it up and edit it. And the Remarkable tablet lets me do that and convert to text and send it, send it by email to myself. And I just find it a much faster way of doing things and also a better way of organizing all of my notes into different folders without having to take 
eight notebooks with me everywhere. Aside from that, I really like using Descript, which is a transcription tool. It works really well to automatically transcribe interviews. I'd say it's like 90, 95% accurate. So it takes a lot of, it just makes the process a lot faster. And Calendly is another good one where if you try to schedule an interview, particularly for me, trying to schedule across multiple time zones is really tricky. So I could just put my availability on a calendar, send somebody a link, and then they can book a time slot. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed to like file a story and you had really bad internet or you just, you know, or like the electricity went out or something? I don't know if you've ever had to file something from a remote locale and the tech was just not working. I don't know if there have been so many times that this has happened that I don't know if I can summon one specific horrifying instance. But I would say that the nice thing about working in the space that I'm in now, as opposed to working at a newspaper, is that a lot of times people are very understanding and deadlines are a little bit flexible. And if you're communicative with your editors, it's not the end of the world if everything goes out and you need like an extra hour, day, whatever. Um, so I would just say, email your editors, blame the situation, and usually the world will not end. Are your editors pretty good about if you ever like are looking for advice or, you know, insight onto, onto the final draft of a story? Are your editors usually pretty good, even though you're freelance of like being available to you to give you any guidance on like how to get through a block or how to overcome like a question you have about the story? Being a freelancer is so interesting because you work with so many different types of people with so many different working styles. And some editors want to make a lot of changes to a story to kind of make it as perfect as it can be. And in other cases, the first draft is what gets published. And I would say that I work very collaboratively with my editors. Like the story pitching process is very collaborative. We'll kind of like brainstorm back and forth sometimes. And then in terms of the final draft, yeah, sometimes I will, sometimes I will like put like an annoying little note in a Google Doc that's like, not really sure how I feel about this line, would love your thoughts. And then we work it out. You have other reporters that you kind of go to for like as a mentor or go for advice that you don't, that you don't work with, but Mm -hmm. you, you still keep in touch with them for like advice on writing and advice on, on reporting or researching stuff. Yeah. So many, I'm very lucky to know a lot of very talented writers and editors. I have been working with Natasha Kohler-Ralph for quite a few years. She's a very impressive journalist and she is basically my writing coach. So we have a lot of meetings. I think we, well, we meet at least once a week, sometimes like two or three times a week and workshop each other's work. And I've learned so much from her. I also have a lot of really good friends who are very generous with their time. And we send each other like emails and voice notes a lot, like workshopping pitches and story ideas and and first drafts and final drafts of essays. And I mean, I think I learned from Natasha that you really need to teach to treat your freelance business as a business. I think it's very easy to get into freelancing where you, you really have the lay of the land to do whatever you want. And obviously that comes with 
a lot of challenges and it's hard to establish, establish yourself in certain niches or to break into certain publications or to break into a certain kind of writing. But when you do, it can be really easy to just be like, oh, this is super fun. I'm just going to keep doing this. But if you want to grow and you want to make a living and you want to reach the next thing and dream about what the next thing is going to be, then you do have to see it as a business and you have to treat it that way when you're pitching and accepting assignments and negotiating. And I learned so much from her about that. And, and I would say that that's kind of the foundation of how I run my business and how I advise other people who are just starting out to, to get started too. And I, and I also think that it's just really important to invest in education opportunities for yourself. I think it's important to go and like join writers communities or trade organizations and go to those events and meet other writers, meet other editors, just to have other people in your court, to have other people to bounce ideas off of. You'll, you'll have times where you get offered an assignment and you just don't have time to take it. And it's amazing to be able to pass that off to someone you know who's going to do a really good job. And it's also amazing to have people who will recommend you when they can't take on an assignment. And that's just like, that's just one of the many reasons why you should Think of other writers and editors as your allies and not as your competition. I think two really close friends of mine, Corey Bouhey and Amelia Arvison, I used to work with them in different capacities at the company I used to work for. And now we're, we're still really close friends and we've had the opportunity to work together professionally. And Corey is going to come visit me in England and we're going to go on an adventure together and write about it. And I'm so excited. And I, I don't know what I would do without the ability to go to them for advice. And I think it can be so easy to think of other writers as competition, especially when you have the same editors or you want to write the same stories. But there are so many stories and so many publications out there. Nobody is going to write the exact same story as you. And so just, I think being open and generous with your time and ideas and, and like kind of welcoming that from other people as well is the, I, I think that's the best thing freelancers can do to just make life easier and more enjoyable. That collaborative mindset is something that I don't think journalism has enough of that I kind of think could be the industry saving grace. If journalists across publications, across, you know, employers reminded themselves that there will be another story there will be more news later that the news doesn't stop with this one with this one scoop or this one report or something and that honestly if there is a bit more collaboration not only could that lead to more financial stability in the industry but also could lead to more credibility among readers when they mm -hmm. they see journalists kind of producing similar stories and not in a not in a way that is misleading but in a way that is reinforcing of the message and the facts behind them i think do you think there's like um a misconception about travel writing that you kind of wish more people knew before they got into it <laughs> maybe it was something you had and then you learned the hard way that uh oh i wish someone had told me that wasn't the case <laughs> yeah there's a lot, honestly. Okay, well, I'm gonna, I, I have two. 
The first thing is that it's very easy to think that travel writing is just permanent vacation, and it is not that. I think it is so much fun, and I'm so lucky to have the job that I have, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I have no intention to stop freelancing anytime soon. It's also really weird to take a vacation when your job is what looks like vacation. Because I'm constantly on. I'm like, how can I turn this into a story? How can I turn this into a business opportunity? How can I like work with a company, work with a destination, work with a magazine? And so it's really hard for me to turn off. And I have found some ways to do this on a small scale, but I can't remember the last time I took time off and like didn't write about it or had have intentions of writing about it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, I think if I was like writing some guidelines for my career five years ago, I would have probably tried to make some kind of definition of vacation for myself and stick to it. And I, I'm getting better at it now, but I think it's so important to take time off and rest. And like, you need to be bored in order to be creative. I think boredom spurs a lot of creativity. And if all you're doing is thinking about how you can turn every life experience into a story, then it gets a little bit overwhelming. So that would be my advice to a younger me. Slow down and not everything has to be for work. And it's okay for travel to also be just for fun. But the other thing that I think travel writers should know is that I think we really need to expand our definition of what a travel story is. Because I think when I was first starting out, I thought that travel writers wrote for National Geographic, Condé Nast Traveler, Afar, magazines like that. And that like, if you're not writing for those types of magazines, like the glossy magazines you'll see in Barnes & Noble, then you're not a real travel writer. But if you think about the kind of thing that most people want to read when they're planning their own trips, like they're looking for a destination roundup, which is not the kind of thing most people dream of writing. But there's so many opportunities to write really good stories in that format in a very like service focused way for a lot of people. And there's also ways to write about travel for magazines that aren't classified as travel whatsoever. The big feature stories aren't recounting of someone getting on an airplane, getting off the airplane, getting in a rental car, getting out of the rental car, getting to the trailhead, hiking to the top of the mountain, and then like seeing a wonderful view, getting back in the car and going home. Those stories are about life happening in that place. And the travel is just kind of implied in a lot of those stories. And you can tell the great stories like that. You can travel to tell great stories like that. There's so many different kinds of magazines and websites and companies. And I think if you get a little bit more creative with it, then you can get into that space a lot more easily than if you're just shooting out emails to the top travel magazines that aren't responding to you. So is there anything that you haven't tried yet with your writing or any specific business endeavors that you haven't tried yet that you would still like to try at some point in your career? Yeah, so there's two main ones. I haven't written a book. I would really like to write a book. And I also would like to someday publish my own magazine. And it's kind of in the works, but that might be another conversation for another day. Like a physical magazine or a digital mm-hmm. magazine? A physical magazine. Completely unrelated to travel. Really? Yeah. You just want to publish a magazine, so it doesn't have to be about 
travel. It'd be really fun to write a travel magazine as well. Explain the affinity for magazines. I'm going to be dead honest. I've never been a big magazine person. They have never personally hooked me in a way that newspapers or podcasts or books have hooked me. Like make the case for why magazines really are the best uh, form of writing and we all need to get on board with them. I think that I fully understand your perspective. And I think magazines are changing a lot. I think if you go into an independent magazine shop these days, there are quite a few in London that I really like to peruse. You're not going to see glossy magazines with 100 articles by 75 different writers on as many different topics. You're going to see really niche publications produced in a really beautiful way that you want to leave on your coffee table and you want to come back to those because there's storytelling that does suck you in and you think about those articles and you want to talk about them with your friends. And I think as the publishing and magazine industry changes a lot, there's more opportunity for these very small, super specific magazines to pop up. And a lot of times I think they do stay really small and it's got to be really hard. I've never run a magazine, but I imagine it's really, really hard to stay relevant and to stay afloat. It's very expensive to print them and it's a lot of work, but I travel in particular, I think people want to be inspired and they want to just kind of happen across stories. And magazines are such a good way to happen across something that you know you want to happen across because they're really specific. A newspaper is for a general audience. You know, you have like 600 different topics in every newspaper. And if you pick up a travel magazine, it's going to be about travel. If you pick up a magazine about coffee, you're going to find lots of interesting stories about coffee. And so if you have an interest in some specific thing, there's probably at least five different magazines about that interest. And that's such a good way to deepen that curiosity and learn more about something you already know you care about. I am seeing your argument for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> But I do agree with you. I am, I'm seeing a greater number of very niche, very beautifully printed, thicker, but like more quarterly magazines and a more like first person essay type magazines. I see a lot more of those now and I've started to follow more of those on Twitter because those are also a lot of, I've seen a lot of those come out of pockets where there's not really a dedicated newspaper or there's not like a journalist or a TV station or something covering that community. And it's like the magazine goes, well, screw it. Let's just ask the people who live here to tell us what it's like for themselves. Well, um, Cassandra, thank you so much for talking with me today. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention though, that we haven't been able to cover yet? I mean, I'm thinking about how ineloquently I said so many things. I'm really hoping okay. that Nicole likes me. And <laughs> good at it. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess another thing that I, I also was thinking about is like my interest in travel has changed a lot over the years because I used to want to go really far away. I wanted to find like the farthest flung place and the place that was the least known somewhere that no one in my network had been to or had heard of or would even want to go to just because I wanted to do something different. And now I find myself so much less interested in traveling 10,000 miles away and so much more interested in exploring wherever it is that I am with that mindset. And I think 
I think I kind of have the luxury of having that mindset because I'm living abroad. I didn't grow up in London or England or the UK. I grew up in Rhode Island, which in a lot of ways is very similar to here, but is completely different in other ways. Like language here is so different. We do not, our words do not mean the same things in England as they do in the United States. Here, when someone says, yeah, I could do, that means no. And that's, that's taken a lot of learning. So I just, I do just find a lot of things of everyday life to be thrilling in a different way, living abroad. And so it is kind of like a full-time travel mindset for me here. And so I recognize that that's a luxury that I have because I'm new to this place. But I've, I've spent many months in the UK now over the past couple of years, and I still haven't gotten bored. I used to think that it would be a waste of time if I, you know, took a trip to Iceland and stayed in the same hotel two nights in a row when I could go to two different places in that span of time and see more. And I think especially as it becomes easier to travel and people have more opportunities to spend more time out of their regular routine, I think slow travel is going to, we're going to see an uptick in in that trend and I really hope we do because I think it's really nice when you walk places instead of like renting a car or getting an Uber and it's really nice to go back to the same place more than once in the same trip you know like you're staying in the same hotel say three or five days in a row and you go to the same cafe every morning and you just can appreciate that process in a different way than if you're just like constantly running around trying to catch a bus, trying to catch a train, trying to see this and get on that tour. I think we all just kind of need to slow down a little bit more in every way. I just really hope that slow travel ironically picks up and that people are more interested in spending more time in fewer places and being more intentional about that time. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Cassandra, so much for talking with me today. It's been great. And just want to ask real quick, uh, where can people find you and how can people reach out to you if they um, want to learn more about you and your work? Thank you so much for having me. I write a newsletter called Out of Office and you can find that at outofoffice.substack.com. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick capre wrote our theme music Emilio brust helped with our booking steph thomas is our social media manager and i'm your host michael o'connell thanks for listening